Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi. I'm Maeve Marsden, and you're listening to Queer Stories 2020, a collection of tales written by LGBTQI plus storytellers during the long, strange months of the year that's been 2020. If you're just dipping into this series now, be sure to check out past episodes. This week's stories pertain to a haunting of sorts. First up is a story by Queenie Bonbon, who is a writer, a performance artist and a sex worker living and working in Nam the 2020 recipient of First Draft's Writers' Program. This story is called All the Brothels Are Haunted and Now the Internet Is Too. Haunting is one of the most common paranormal beliefs around the world. Many believe that almost every town or city has at least one haunted place. I have worked in many offices that have had their ghostly quirks where maybe one would turn off the light and the office would decide that no, that light would in fact be remaining on. Places that would frequently host unexplained temperature changes or very unusual scents. Although actually those unusual scents were maybe a little bit more explainable than the other phenomena. What I'm saying is um, actually not that every brothel should be on the horny and haunted ghost watcher's guide, But more that since March, the spaces which have often hosted sex work have become shells. Their form and function seem so unstable. When spaces lose their meaning, what happens to their use? Success in space use is significantly correlated with knowledge about it providing further evidence that conceptual knowledge plays a key role in its spatial use. What do we know about this emptiness that these spaces hold? I know that my workplaces too often have had such coded meetings. How do we read them in this time? What is a brothel with no whores and whores with no brothels? I think of the lockers filled with pleasers and g-strings and Hello Kitty body spray that have not been touched since March. I feel sad for them to be in a place made for touch and connection and there they are, alone and abandoned. I think of the prophylactics moving closer to expiry. They never got to fulfil their destiny. I think of the unopened curtains and dusting floors, the ageing snacks that have been left behind, that will become just like a whole new thing. Maybe they're sitting in a Lorna Jane sports bag in a locker, creating actually dream conditions for food decomposition, allowing microbes and enzyme activity to be optimised, making food energy more available to the bacteria and fungi. How nice. 
I picture all of my old offices and in my mind's eye I draw portraits of past. But I know it's not just the empty brothel that house these ghosts. The internet is a playground for a modern ghost story to be written in O's and ones. While many of us have been making banana bread, going on little anxiety benders or simply walking around the block for our allotted one hour, there is another COVID hobby, a lesser advertised activity of um, building escort directories during times of financial adversity. This is not the first time I've witnessed this hobby grow. The last time I witnessed it with such gusto was in 2017, when Foster Sester, the law designed to stop sex trafficking, was passed. A law that did nothing to assist workers' safety, just removed our visibility. The idea that if we cannot be seen, we will be gone. A law that moved through our very bordered world in a way that our bodies cannot. A law that took down Backpage, an advertising platform, and many other vital resources for sex workers worldwide. Although now, it is not the removal of an advertising platform that has caused the precarious nature of this time, but the knowledge that workers have lost the ability to work freely that's created a breeding ground for these new hobbyists. In mid-March, I had taken down what I thought was all of my online advertisements. I knew that one could be fined for working and that the police, who really have no job in anything, but like really nothing in the space of attending to any well-being of the people, well, the police have taken it upon themselves to play entrapment. Entrapment is sort of like a non-consensual role-play game where they pretend to be a client, TM, and then like maybe they'll call you and see if you're working, and if you say you're not working, maybe trying to get you to agree to working, maybe by offering you more dollies, etc, etc. Anyway, they love to play. It's like the very fun game of criminalising survival. My act in laboriously taking down my ads was what I believed was something of being of a future friend to myself. My hotline was COVID cancelled. Please don't leave a message after the beep or send a dick pic. I'm just having some anxiety, so I just really can't at the moment. And yet, by the end of that week, six people attempted to make bookings with me, all claiming that they had no idea about COVID. Had not heard of it. One claiming that they lived out of reception and that they'd just driven to the city to see me. I'm just really not the type of prostitute you drive into the city for. I'm more just like when someone is really desperate to have someone insert a mayonnaise jar into their anus without too much chitty chat. I wonder if this is our dear friend, the horror hobbyists. Are they at it again? Pop-up sites appear in the hope that they will become the new Backpage or Scarlet Blue. They usually do what I guess is very untechnically known as reposting, except not in a cute sort of like like and repost way. I know strange technological glitches are another sign of hauntings, but maybe this praxis shows us something more terrifying in our social sphere than in the metaphysical space. The week after, those wanting to see me had moved from 6 to 27. People in Canberra and Brisbane, all calling me. I get offered 
10 toilet rolls for blow and go. I wonder if this is a new world, or at least the start of a weird movie, like that guy who swapped a paperclip for a house, the whore who swapped a BJ for some loo rolls, which are now so inflated in value. What could be next? A hundred avos on toast? I decline the offer. So that's the end of that straight to TV movie idea. Instead, I do a Google image search of my ad and I find that my ads are no longer really my ads. My photos and my phone number are still the same, but the text is different. I am much nicer in these ads. Like they've really removed my kind of bossy tone and made it simple. So obvious, keep it simple. I'm available to be your girlfriend in many cities, which feels very different to the real me. There are some other ads with my picture, but different numbers. Like this holographic version of me has now got many phones. So smart. I'm building a whole workforce of myself. I see myself reflected and replicated over and over. I wonder if our offices will ever house us again. Will one ever be able to work in the ways that we had before? In all of its glorious, touching and fluid filled ways? I wonder if these holographic versions of me will keep evolving. Are these versions of me also chronically ill? Or do these versions not bother with that sort of palaver? What kind of super whore will I become? While I'm writing this, I get a call from a nice man. He wants to know about my ad that I had just posted. I tell him that I didn't just post an ad. He says he must have the wrong number. I tell him that he actually does have the right number. It's just an offering that's from the past or maybe a future version of me, but whatever he saw, it's not happening now because of the pandemic and also that it's 10.38 p.m. So I actually can't even leave my house and I have no office. He asks, hopefully, so um, you're not doing anything sexy in Melbourne right now. I have not done or really felt anything sexy this whole time. I've had moments, moments of sudden desperate longing for something, where I am suddenly desperate for attention. I put on father figure and do a thrusty dance that is sort of sexual-ish while wearing only my pyjama top. Imagine if I was at the club on King Street and I was doing this sexy dance on stage. Look at me and imagine if this was my sexy dance in just my pyjama top. Imagine, imagine, look at me and imagine. My partner momentarily looks up from the Warhammer figurines and informs me that they are imagining. My doggy buries himself into the blankets so he does not have to imagine. And then I'm done. My mania wanes and we all return to our quiet time. That is the closest I've come to doing a sexy thing, but that's probably not the type of sexy thing that he's looking for. I search my ad and I see it continue to shapeshift. It's like I'm in Quantum Leap. My ad says I'm now in Brisbane, Canberra and Melbourne. How multidimensional of me. Each version of myself a little different. One has a photo that I haven't used online for six years and yet here I am an old version of me embracing this new world. I'm just really out there. 
Another has a title that's all in emojis, ticks and hearts. I'm visioning my future direction of digital communication. The opening line is young and horny. I'm actually a little more like 40 and frigid. Anxious and covered in dog hair would also be a pretty fair description. The control of sex workers' images, how they're replicated and reshaped by others, it's not a new horror, nor are the conditions that allow us to appear and then disappear. The complexities of navigating your virtual self in your analogue body are plentiful. I get a message from an old client who loves to eat a little treaty out of the bin. It's really a sad time for Pickers. I really have nothing for him in every sense of what having something for him might look like. I'm walking my dog in our one hour of out the house time. My dog is also a real lover of bin treats, although his true true love is eating poo. I watch my doggy delicately sniff before committing to which poo he will eat. Testing the aroma, I imagine can be one of the most overlooked parts of deciding which poo one should eat. Dearest doggy will hold his nose just above the poo, letting himself run the entire poo across his nostrils. He usually takes a long inhale so he can get a real feeling for the scent. I like to imagine that he's a poo connoisseur, in the same way that a lover of cigars might understand them to have many different flavours. Earthy, leather, nutty, floral, garbage, etc. I imagine him describing how these flavours come from the aroma itself, not necessarily the actual taste of the poo. However, smell and taste are so closely knit that the smell of the poo will directly determine what the taste will be like. Our senses directly impact each other. He's an expert in finding the best as best poo-poo. But are we not all experts in our own desire? I know I have a desire to be in my fullness. I think that the ghosts that are haunting me are maybe not even my ghosts. When nothing on the internet belongs to us, and we can't keep it if someone wants to take it away. Maybe these ghosts are communal metadata, and the brothels, they were never ours. It's just the way we used them that was magic. The picker calls again a few days later to let me know to contact him if I find anything that he would like. I wonder if anyone took the bins out at the office. I think about the fermenting seed left behind. I know a spermie can live for five days in a front portal, but I'm unsure of its lifespan on tissue and then a nappy bag. I think of all the little ghost spermies flopping around the office. I wonder if I can DIY a treat for him and post it, like maybe out of kipper and flour? I just can't find a good recipe online, and I'm not really thinking of returning my office for a little route around, but if I did, I mean, it would be fine. I feel like the ownership of human waste feels like a little bit of a grey area, is that right? Like, people are free to take their cummy tissues home, which I don't state, and so far only one person's ever requested to do so. But once they've left them with me, are they mine? Is the bin sort of a neutral zone that no one has ownership of? So yes, 
Have I ever fed a hungry little hippo out of the bin? Sure. Was it mine to feed them? Unsure. It's sort of like that, you know, you wouldn't steal a car ad, but I mean, I def would if it was just downloading it from Mega Upload. Would you steal someone's spermies? No, but if they just left them in a bin from their Mega Download, I would gladly feed it to someone who wanted to give me 50 dollies for a sneaky snacko, but there are no snackos for me to feed any online good boys at the moment. In between tracking my new online selves, I see an article called Block Porn, Free Up the Internet for Essential Services and Community. So the internet must be used for important activities in these times. An appeal for our bad bodies to be banned. To just really help the crisis. If one was truly worried about the internet being blocked up, one could start a campaign for people to delete their spam email. Like, that would just be so easy. I would definitely, for COVID, delete all my unreads, which is currently sitting at about um, 16,500, not to brag or anything. Also, you know, if I haven't replied to your email, um, just know that I'm just probably waiting for the right time to open it. I know that, like, an individual spam email is probably very insignificant, but if, like, the global community took a whole stance against the spam, we could remove 80% of all email traffic, or approximately 40% of all the data traffic from the internet, this would free up the bandwidth for literally everything else that's more important. And let's for a moment imagine that not cutting off the income from those who make money's porn is important. I suspect the author already had a few feelings about the internet and porn, and this was just a cute way for them to marry these ideas. At some point, I still believed this would all just be a moment. And now it's been many, many moments. Time has become bendy, and my body just feels hardened in this uncertainty. I get another message. Are there any spots at the shop today? It's cute how they call it a shop, like, I'm just nipping off to the shop. I think of my lonely shop, which is not a shop at all, but in fact an unlicensed brothel. Think of the sad massage tables with no oily bodies pressed into them. What is their destiny now? It's shut, I reply, because we're in stage four lockdown. He seems surprised that either we're not considered an essential service or maybe more that because we're already being illegal that we would just continue to be more illegal because isn't like illegal plus illegal just still illegal. So definitely no spots available today. I offer him this. Um, sex worker says, I know a spot. Client says, nah, that's just a skin tag. I don't get a reply. I guess with comedy, it's a real know your audience game. But um, I was shadow banned from my real audience for posting my butt. And that joke really just needed somewhere to go. I mean, we all want and need somewhere to go in these times. From the paranormal to the pathological we go, because my friends, let's face it, it's queer culture to lug around the ghosts of X's past like a non-culturally appropriative talisman. Our next storyteller, Victoria Zerbst, is a national treasure. 
a political satirist, writer and performer for The Feed on SBS. She's also a co-founder of Sydney-based comedy collective Freudian Nip and the 2020 recipient of the ATYP Rebel Wilson Comedy Commission. I have to begin by telling you that my ex-girlfriend and I, we had a song. I'm pretty sure other couples have songs and, you know, good on them. But this is a story about our song and how it became the sad, unforgiving soundtrack of my coronavirus lockdown. It's a story of regret, sure. <laughs> longing, definitely longing. Declarations of love, the politics of performance, and the warped romantic education of a bisexual. And I, I'm that bisexual. And I think it is fair to blame all of my maladaptive psychologies on the internet. You know, the irony poisoning, the knowing of things, the normalizing of shameful but inevitable activities like reaching out to an ex in these unprecedented times. The internet can't help it with all the memes they do, and simply, neither can I. At first, you might try to ignore the ex itch with a craft project, a cross stitch, an oil painting. But then you reread a tweet that's like, Girl, whatever you do, don't text your ex. He's not worth it. And you agree. He's probably not worth it. Men often aren't. But what about your ex-girlfriend? You know, the one with whom you shared a song. Might she be worth it? And then commences this little dance in your mind. The back and forth. The should I, shouldn't I. And then you dance towards this little quote by Hume you keep in the corner of your mind because you're unhinged. And it tells you. I'll do a voice here. Reason alone cannot be motive to the will, but is rather the slave of the passions. Okay, I, I, regret, I regret the voice, but <laughs> you just remember that whatever reasons you give yourself for or against, your passions will always guide your actions. Humor's pretty much just giving you a free pass to do whatever you want. So you let yourself reminisce back into the times you felt safe and excited by life. You know, besides, it's corona, you're living through a screen, you're re-watching 90s rom-coms and reading about contemporary economic recessions. Of course you're going to think about all the love that you had that went away. You know, how she made you laugh like no one else. How you would dance on the bus together heading into work. How you would make the pictures on your work security passes kiss. How you both worked for, you know, public broadcasters at the time. And how you would gift each other books with little love notes written on the covers. You remember that you only broke up because she moved overseas to study neoliberal temporalities in a queer literature. You remember that in these neoliberal corona temporalities, the concepts of place, time, space, I mean, these things don't exist anymore. She is but an email, a Facebook DM, a Zoom, heaven help us away at any moment and you're stuck inside at your parents house painting a table but then you remember what reaching out might look like what you might say and how you left things maybe a check-in a hey feels ridiculous limp even an underachievement in imagination tonally jarring in this heightened operatic time so you think how else might I communicate everything I'm feeling and more? Maybe a gesture of sorts. A declaration, maybe. And then you have it. What if I sent a recording of me singing, which, you know, she likes, 
and playing the piano, which she probably likes, but it's a cover of the song, which you know she loves. And then it hits you. That's it. That is the means of expression most suited to your intensity of feeling. The song is a Beck Sandridge cover of the Cindy Lauper recover of a song by Roy Orbison, originally written by Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly. It's about a person so desperate to see their lover in the middle of the night that they drive all night to visit their lover. They wake their lover up and they make love to their lover. And during lockdown, yeah, I really felt that. But for this to be a queer love song, the drive part, of course, you know, has to be a metaphor. This was particularly apt for me and my ex-girlfriend because true to form, you know, neither of us can drive. <laughs> the song starts like this. I had to escape, the city was sticky and cruel. Maybe I should have called you first, but I was dying to get to you. I was dreaming while I drove the long straight road ahead. Could taste your sweet kisses, your arms open wide. This fever for you is what's burning me up inside. Yeah, it is, um, it's quite a tune. And it's then that you realize how kind of cool and mask it feels to be the one making the grand romantic gesture. I mean, not that any guy has done that for you before, but you've just grown up with the understanding as a bisexual woman socialized as straight for slightly too long, that if man loves, man do gesture. But now you, transgressive, you love and you do gesture? And upon someone who will truly appreciate it, a beautiful, sensitive gal just waiting to be expressed to. I mean, she's probably been socialized that way as well. I mean, you've never really understood how roles work. You're a switch, after all. And now you're switching roles with Michael Cusack and his boombox. Heath Ledger with the microphone. That kid from Love Actually, they let through the airport to say goodbye to his 10-year-old crush, which was totally fine because it was before 9-11. And now your only worry is this. Is my cover of this song that I'm going to send to my ex during Corona, is it too derivative, too similar to the original? I mean, imagine sending her bad art in an email with the subject line, thinking of you, and then you've just kind of what, attached an audio file. <laughs> you worry that from the voice of Beck Sandridge, this song is pure liquid poetry, but you don't want to directly replicate her version. So you go back and listen to Roy Orbison's take on the song. You want to hear that original recording, that 1987 shit, so you can steal from that musically instead. So you listen, and then something shifts. Especially when it gets to the chorus, and it goes, I drove all night to get to you. Is that all right? I mean, it's pretty benign, but in pure Silicon Valley style, the singer asks for forgiveness instead of permission. I mean, dude, you've already driven there, but okay, go off. But it gets better, he continues. I drove all night, crept in your room. Red flag. Woke you from your sleep? Creepo. To make love to you 
Is that all right? I drove all night. And now we're in danger, especially with that passive aggressive defensiveness. Like, is that all right, babe? I did drive all night, right? Maybe you should have called her first, Roy. Maybe you should ask before you drive all night and turn up at this poor woman's door demanding sex. Now, am I being heteronormative to assume that Roy is singing about a female lover here? Sure. But in my poetic imagination, and because of the song Pretty Woman, I feel pretty comfortable pitching it a vibe here. Now, to answer your question quickly, am I cancelling Roy Alderson? No, he is dead. But am I about to cancel my own romantic gesture? Now that is the question. I learn almost everything I know about love and romance from movies. You know, also the internet and songs and books, but mostly those capital F films. You know, I'm a cinephile, after all. But it is all endless poison. And it's usually very easy to imagine myself as the girl in these boy-meet-girl scenarios. Especially in those like saccharine sweet scenes of men chasing women through airports, arriving at New Year's Eve parties just in time, interrupting soccer practice and stopping traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. When men do these courageous and defiant acts, you must forgive them, for whatever. The crowd is obsessed with this. Someone in the 90s film will always start the slow clap. Man, win, woman over. The order is restored. Except we don't really believe that anymore. You know, when I take off my Hollywood tinted glasses, I see that men in movies will come to the rescue with their big romantic gestures, only when they have to make up for the fact that they have been emotionally stunted for the majority of the film's plot. But still, might there be something cool and transgressive about a bisexual woman reclaiming this typically masculine narrative for herself? Should she even want that narrative? Aren't these just hollow ego gestures? It's a tough question. And then you think about how you left things with your ex-girlfriend. How you never made it to the airport to say farewell. How the two of you decided to call it and not even try long distance. How you try to perform a version of I drove all night at her going away party and then cried when you messed up the chords and gave less than a professional performance. How in this story, maybe you were, or still are, emotionally withholding, stunted and disappointing. How you sit there recording your song, singing your song, getting ready to send it via email and that's your way of trying to break through the walls that you've built up for yourself. That it's so much easier to perform for a crowd than it is to tell one person that you messed up, that you miss them, and that you're sorry. Oh, I never sent the recording. Yeah, I guess you could say that I bitched it. I think, honestly, I was too scared of being rejected. But in this story, it is because I am too wise and I know better. One of my friends sent me this wholesome Instagram infographic that said something like, grief is so hard because you're feeling all this love that is now missing a place to go. And I was like, wow, that is so me. <laughs> you know, I'm still heartbroken and during Corona, I had nowhere to go but backwards, back to my last point of comfort, back to the memories of our love. In our first perfect kiss by the beach on a moody autumn's night, when I wore all her clothes to a party that was themed strong, powerful women in history. When we sketched each other and like her drawing was magical and my drawing of her was basically a child's drawing. 
and we laughed over orange wine and dumplings and I felt so happy I thought I would burst. And when she listened to me play piano and sing for the first time and cried, I felt seen and heard for the first time, yeah, ever in, in a relationship. And while it still breaks my heart, I know that I can't drive all night and take this love back to its original owner. It just wouldn't be fair on her. It would be an ego move. You know, and I still don't have a license. So I'm trying something new. I want to take this love and redistribute it. God, call me a heartbreak socialist. But when I sing this song now, I need it to be for everyone because I can't carry these feelings alone and I'm no longer trying to win her back. Even though, you know, some say I'm a real catch. So now I'm just trying to reel you all in. Because who is this song for if not for everyone? For everyone who has ever wanted to be there for someone but never known how. For those of us who want to drive all night to be there for an ex-partner, even though they shouldn't, which works because they can't drive and will never learn. And for everyone who wishes for a romance lifted from film scripts or love songs but knows that is not really how it ever goes. This is for you. I had to escape. The city was sticky and cool. Maybe I should have called you first, but I was dying to get to you. I was dreaming while I drove the long straight road ahead. Could taste your sweet kisses, your arms open wide. This fever for you is what's burning me up inside I drove all night to get to you Is that alright? I drove all night from tearing apart just no matter where i go i hear the beating of your heart well i think about you when the night is cold and dark just no one can move me the way that you do nothing compares to this fever between me and you I drove all night to get to you. Is that all right? I drove all night, crept in your room, and woke you from your sleep to make love to you. Is that all right? I drove all night to get to you. Is that all right? I drove all night. I drove all night.
So I think that I should end this by telling you all that I performed this piece live uh, for Queers on the Fringe. And on opening night, completely unbeknownst to me, uh, my ex-girlfriend, uh, the one with whom I shared the song, the one with whom I shared all these stories. Um, yeah, she turned up. She was right there in the audience next to the live stream camera. And she had to sit through all of this. And I had to perform this knowing that she was right there. I mean, that is a queer story. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, follow Queer Stories on Facebook, and me, Maeve Marsden, on Twitter and Instagram. This project is supported by the City of Sydney through a Creative Fellowship Fund. You can support Queer Stories for as little as $1 per month by signing up to my Patreon. Look up Maeve Marsden on Patreon or follow the links in the podcast description. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.